So today, um, Mike is on today. Uh, start a new series in the season of Epiphany on forgiveness. And some of you probably wonder, what, how, what does Chris come up with these different sermon series? Um, I don't really have a method. <laughs> I try to listen to the Spirit. But I was actually listening to a podcast interview with Tim Keller and Russell Moore, Russell, on Russell Moore's podcast about Keller's new book on forgiveness. And I was just clear. I was like, wow, this is so important. Um, so uh, this series is really inspired by, um, by that. And just, you know, I'll explain more in, in depth when we get into the sermon. Um, but I thought it was also appropriate um, for this season, right? Because, again, I've already alluded to in our service is that one of the things that comes in the world when Jesus arrives is the forgiveness of sins. And so uh, that's what we're going to reflect on uh, before, uh, during the season of, of Epiphany before we get to Lent. Our scripture this morning uh, comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's a parable, the parable of the immersiveful servant. And you can find it on page, well, I don't know what page it is because I don't have the pagination today. It's weak. But uh, find it in your worship folder. So, um, then Peter came up to, and said to Jesus... Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found that one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him began to choke him saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his, prison, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do, do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that you teach us about forgiveness today, what it means to forgive others, what it means to receive your forgiveness, and how receiving your forgiveness changes us and empowers us and moves us to forgive others. And I, I pray very specifically today, in one way or another, all of us have to forgive, and the things we have to forgive vary. Some are great, um, and some things are little, but I pray that, that all of us here um, would move closer to forgiveness, whatever it might be, that you would work your grace and that we'd understand your grace and mercy towards us in a greater way today because of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I think that Cardinal George, Francis George is right. I have a quote in the front of your worship folder. When he says um, that in America, everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. Everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. He says in the United States, everything is permitted, even encouraged. But while practically everything might be permitted, practically nothing is forgiven. By contrast, in the church, much is not permitted, but while much is not permitted, everything can be forgiven. Our culture pulls us towards vengeance, our faith towards mercy. Now, it's not hard to see um, the absence of forgiveness um, in American society everywhere around us. Uh, Increased gun violence and shootings. Oftentimes, you hear the backstory of what happened because of this shooting or event, and they're very, uh, you know, things like personal grievances, uh, petty slights that end up turning and escalating into violence, Uh, the deepening political polarization of our culture is another example where bearing grudges and punishing the opposition or even those in your own party, as we saw this week, um, has become a virtue that actually gets you elected um, and get ahead, politically speaking. Um, Cancel culture, right, in the public domain. One of my friends who teaches uh, college undergrads uh, often talks to me and says that, you know, kid. College kids are more and more afraid to talk in class because they're afraid that if they share their views or opinion on something and they offend somebody, that they'll get canceled. You even see sort of cancel culture sort of entering into family life and domestic context. And more and more I hear stories of uh, family members canceling each other or just completely cutting each other off over what I would consider pretty minor things in the grand scheme, or, or simply for holding the wrong political views. We seem quick to cut people off and cancel them, um, not just in the public domain, but also within our domestic lives. As a culture, one of our ascendant values is the personal rights of the individual and a demand for justice when those rights are violated. Now, this is not necessarily all bad, but when this is the ascendant value of a culture, talk of forgiveness is then perceived to be uh, inimical and opposed and hostile to the rights of an individual in a rights-based culture. And so for this reason, it makes sense that as our culture uh, moves more towards this, that we have increasingly a policy of no mercy, right? It's like Cobra Kai, no mercy, (laughs) if you guys know that show. Uh, and vengeance. And I don't think that the church is any different. My experience is that people in the church, on the whole, are not that much better at forgiving than the culture itself. So why is this so difficult? Why is forgiveness such a hard thing for us? Uh, Why is it we don't like to forgive? There is something really unnatural about forgiveness. There's something really unnatural. When we're wronged, by another person, really, truly wronged, not just something small and slight. But when we're wronged for, by another person, our instinct is not to forgive. It's painful. We become angry. We are hurt. We want accountability. We want recompense for the wrongs that we have suffered. It, in, forgiveness is almost never an, an instinct, an instinctual respond to, response to a wrong that's been committed against us. And before Christianity comes into the world, historically speaking, 
And you look at ancient cultures, uh, I mean, forgiveness was known and, and practiced to a certain extent, but there's, it was never something that was, was emphasized. It was never something that was highly valued in a culture, not like it became in societies that were influenced by Christianity, where forgiveness becomes a really central virtue. That's because there's something very unnatural about forgiveness. It's not easy to forgive. It goes against a lot of our emotional instincts. It's easier to nurse a grudge. Um, it's easier to, to want to pursue kind of exacting justice than to offer forgiveness. But there's another reason I think that forgiveness is hard. Uh, it's because there's a way in which we feel like forgiveness cheapens justice. We often talk about forgiveness and you know, in the light of these horrific events and the need to forgive. And, and sometimes it feels like the way we talk about forgiveness actually undermines justice or works against true justice. And, you know, in our, we, we recently completed this past year this trial of, of Daryl Brooks, the man who, who rammed into um, a parade in Waukesha and killed six and wounded dozens. And, and in the courtroom, there was often these scenes of him with this big fat Bible and you know, often talking about mercy and forgiveness, but never really wanting to take responsibility, never showing any remorse. And, and when a guy like that, you know, talks about mercy and forgiveness, and you're like, if that's what mercy and forgiveness is, I don't want anything to do with it. Because it, it's, it just, it feels false. But there's actually another reason why I think forgiveness is so hard. And I think this is probably where the majority of us are. Um... We just can't do it, right? Like, it's like we, it's, we might even realize, like, I know I should forgive this person, but I can't. I hear that a lot. I know I should forgive this person, but I can't. It's sort of like, it's like I want to bend down and touch the floor, but I, I can't. Like, my back hurt. I can't. I simply cannot do it. I'm un emotionally unable to forgive. Um, so, again, it's, it's easier to sort of maintain uh, a grudge, or just to, to kind of cut a person off, or, or to try to seek revenge. That's easier. Nevertheless, despite the difficulty, all the difficulties, and I haven't even mentioned all the difficulties of forgiveness, despite the difficulty of forgiving, um, I think people in our culture, we still, we still see forgiveness as a good thing, and we admire it in others. We, we find it praiseworthy, but we'll never require it. We, we won't require it. Forgiveness is optional, something for especially moral, spiritual people, loving people, um, but we don't require it. And I think this is also the case with Christians in general. We like forgiveness, we want to receive forgiveness, uh, but we, we, we don't feel comfortable requiring forgiveness. And we won't hold one another accountable when we refuse to forgive. Um, I think that's where, that's a good, you know, that's where we're at generally when it comes to forgiveness in the church. Um, this, however, is not Jesus' perspective. This is not Jesus' perspective. According to Jesus, forgiveness is not optional, whether we forgive one another. It's not optional. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he's very direct, and this is one of many. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's really what this parable is about. And, and it, you know, the, the, the last little part of this parable is, is quite haunting and, and challenging to us when Jesus is talking about the servant and the king. And the king says to the servant, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Forgiveness is not optional for followers of Jesus. Forgiveness is not optional. Um, Rather, we are called to forgive from the heart. (laughs) Um, And the reality is this, is that you as a human being, you're never more like God when you're forgiving. You're never more like God than when you're forgiving one another. Now, every time I preach on this theme of forgiveness, I I feel like I'm always just scratching the surface of the topic. I've already raised a lot of really significant issues related to forgiveness um, that I can't even begin to to address um, this morning, which is why I thought, you know, (laughs) this deserves a whole series. And so over the next six weeks, I really want to explore in detail with you this theme of forgiveness and to try to answer a lot of the really complex um, realities about forgiveness. Things like, you know, it's one, you know, forgiving doesn't always mean reconciliation, right? I mean, there are, there are things that people do against us, and I'm thinking particularly of abuse and trauma in which um, there, there's no possibility for reconciliation. And yet, forgiveness is so possible there's all kinds of aspects of forgiveness that we, we need to explore. Today, I'm really focused on that sort of everyday forgiveness that we need to be able to exercise as we get along in families and communities and workplaces. Um, and my goal is really that we as a community and as, as individuals would resist that strong pull of our culture, which I think is increasing, towards resentment and bitterness and vengeance, and that we would be characterized by forgiveness and love. And that's what, so the series title here is The Forgiving Life. Um, And the forgiving life is based upon the fact that we have been forgiven, right? Uh, That's the thing. There's no such thing as having a forgiven, being a forgiving person or having a forgiving life unless you understand and experience what it means to be forgiven. And that's what this parable is about, and that's what I want us to focus on today. Um, So when Peter comes to Jesus, um, he asks him, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive? And I'm, I imagine that Peter thought he was very generous when he said seven times. It's like seven times. Most people say none, right? And Jesus says, no, I, it's not seven times. It's 77 times. In other words, Peter, you can't put a limit on forgiveness. And I think we're very much like Peter when it comes to conversations about forgiveness. We start the conversation on forgiveness. We want to know where are the limits? Where are the boundaries? We start here. I want to find my red line, and I want to find the limits. And Jesus, his response is the complete opposite, right? He wants to blow it all up. He's like, I'm going to blow up all your boundaries and all the limits you want to, you want to put on how much or what you should forgive. And he begins with this parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. One, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So how much do you think 10,000 talents is? 10,000 talents um, is the equivalent of 6,000 denarii, which is the kind of like dollars of sorts. Um, It's not equivalent to dollars. Uh, The annual income of King Herod, estimated, who is a wealthy, rich king who can fleece everybody, was uh, 900 talents uh, a year. The average daily wage of a, of a man like this, this servant, kind of a middle-class guy, would have been one denarii a day. One denarii a day, right? So let's do a little math real quick here. This is the most math you'll ever get out of me. Um, 
this servant's debt, 10,000 10, talents to, in denarii is 60 million denarii, right? Think about that. At one denarii a day, that's over 164,000 years it would take this man to pay this off, which is, if you say average age, 70, that's generous, would take 2,300 years or lifetimes for this man to pay off his debt. You get the picture, right? Jesus is saying, basically, a man came who had an unpayable debt, right? And the king forgave him, right? So the king comes, and he wants to collect on this debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and make payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, in thinking about the limits of forgiveness in our lives, consider your own situation before God. Before God, you had incurred an unpayable debt, astronomically high, that would take over 2,000 lifetimes of you to ever pay it off. Now, when you think about what kind of limits you want to put on your forgiving of others, should God also put limits on his forgiveness of you? That's what Jesus wants us to think about. The central kind of assumption of Jesus' teaching here is that forgiveness, that human beings, we have amassed an unpayable debt before God, and yet the Lord has forgiven us. And because of this, we should forgive one another. This is a theme that gets repeated again and again and again in the Gospels, in the Epistles. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's the, it's the ground floor of forgiveness in the Christian life. But as you know, the story goes on. The servant doesn't do this. He refuses to forgive. Let me read you the rest of the story. Verse 28. And when uh, that same servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they, they went and opened, re reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. Now what stands out here is, is the, the deep, profound disconnect between what this man has been forgiven and what he refuses to forgive. Right, remember, like he owes 60 million denarii and he's owed 100 right? The, his, what he's owed is a fraction uh, uh, of, of, of his overall debt. And his reaction to the servant, it even says it, he takes him by the, he tries to choke him, right? He's obviously uh, very angry. And what this shows is this man, he didn't really understand what he was forgiven. He didn't really understand the real cost of his own, his own debt. And I think you, you see that even before he's forgiven because he comes to the king when the king confronts him with his debt and he pleads with him and says, I, just give me more time, I'll pay it off, right? Now again, like he owes 10,000 talents. Who knows how this guy gotten so far into debt? That's not the point. Nevertheless, 
either he's lying to the king or he's just completely deluded about how much he really owes. And so it's not surprising that he doesn't really get or appreciate that which he's been forgiven, and he responds this way to this man. He doesn't understand the true costliness of what was forgiven. And because of this, he wasn't changed. He wasn't changed at all by the forgiveness he received. Um, He was a recipient of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the theologian, called cheap grace. Uh, Bonhoeffer says this about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner, which departs from the sin. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toys of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. I like to think of it as cheap grace is like dollar store grace. It's like dollar store grace. I mean, it costs next to nothing to manufacture it overseas. And all the there's like an infinite supply of cheap grace that fills up all the trash heaps, all the moral trash heaps of our world. This man never really reckoned with um, what the king had done for him, and uh, he just goes on with life as normal, as an unchanged person. Um, Again, but Jesus assumes that when we have really wrestled and grappled with what we've been forgiven by God, it it really changes us, and it it allows us to actually forgive one another. Um, But practically speaking, how does this work? How does a gift of forgiveness help us forgive others? Now, one thing it changes, that changes us, is, is how we think about our life as a resource and how we think about the management of our life as a resource. Being a forgiving person is really closely connected to being a generous person, to be a, a giving person. Um, to forgive um, is to be generous, in a sense. So the metaphor for sin that's used in this passage and, and a lot of the gospel texts is, is debt, financial debt. And when we sin against God and we sin against others, what we do is we incur a debt, like a financial debt against that person. We take things like respect, honor, love, dignity, health. See, these are all things that are, in a sense, owed us as persons created in God's image. And when we sin against one another, we're, we're in a sense, stealing from us uh, things that we should have by right of God being created in God's image. And so when you forgive another person, what you're doing is you're, you're basically canceling the debt. And what that means is you have to absorb the cost. Somebody ha- I mean, there was something that was taken and it was lost, and somebody has to pay for it. And forgiveness means that you absorb the cost, right? You eat the cost. And this is never an easy thing to do. This is never an easy thing to do. This is the process of forgiveness. I'm going to talk a lot about that next week. But to forgive is to absorb the cost, right? But divine forgiveness isn't just canceling a debt. When we receive God's forgiveness, it's not just that our debt has been, this unpayable debt has been canceled. It comes with the realization that our lives have been, in a sense, financially underwritten and supported by uh, infinite wealth and riches (laughs) by being God's children, right? That's part of that. It's a little bit, it's, it's, it's not the direct point of this, this text, But what kind of king can cancel the $60 million debt of all of his citizens without going bankrupt? What kind of king can do that? No king. The kingdom of heaven, though. The king who rules the kingdom of heaven can. 
Because the kingdom of heaven is not a zero-sum economy where there's only a limited amount of, of like resources that have to be divvied up and, you know, it is infinite in its wealth. There's no such thing as scarcity. And the, to be forgiven by God means that you as a human being have been drawn into a different economy when it comes to your person and self. Now, here's what that means. That means that nobody can take something from you that God, by His grace, cannot restore to you. Nobody can take something from you that God, by His grace, cannot ultimately restore to you. It will never be the case that you will have to absorb some kind of debt, some kind of loss that God Himself cannot restore, some kind of debt that will ultimately leave you bankrupt and ruined. The unmerciful servant was a very miserly person. Um, He was a very petty man. That becomes really clear in this story. Um, And I think sometimes we can become like this. We can become petty, miserly with our our person, like Ebenezer Scrooge, um, keeping a close account of all the little debts, all the little slights, all the insults that kind of accrue up. And we're fearful that somehow if we don't address these, if we don't make it right, that somehow our estate is going to go into foreclosure. But again, friends, know this, is that there is no debt that will ever, you will ever be asked to absorb that will ruin you, that will bankrupt your life. Now, sometimes when we, um, we are sinned against and we are wronged, um, one of the effects of this is it creates unforgiveness in our souls. And one of the, there's a lot of different manifestations and signs of unforgiveness in the soul. Bitterness, anger, apathy, cynicism. Depending on your temperament, it will look very different. I'll talk more about this again, what unforgiveness looks like. But when you have unforgiveness in your soul, when something happens to you and you cannot forgive, it's like having a bulge disc in your back. And if you ever had that, it's very painful. You have very limited range of motion, Right? And when unforgiveness, it, it grips our soul, it, it creates this bulge, and we just can't move or twist in natural ways that we need to, to love and, and to be engaged. And, but the same thing you need to help a, a bulge disc in your back, you kind of need for your soul when it has a kind of spiritual bulge, if you will. And you need time, that's one. Forgiveness is a process, it's not instantaneous especially the greater the grievance. But the other thing you need is you need physical therapy. Um, you need to do specific exercises, different kinds of exercises to work yourself up to be able to make that move, the normal movements of, of loving and being in community. And so with this metaphor in mind, I'm going to come back to this a lot. Each week, I want to just give you an exercise to think about um, to help you get some more movement in your soul if you're struggling with unforgiveness. And this week... The exercise is pretty straightforward and simple. It's this. I want you to specifically think on your sin debts. I want you to think specifically of those sins in your life that God has forgiven. I think sometimes when we think about forgiveness in our lives, we're, we just think about it as like this blanket generalization. But if, if someone were to ask, well, how has God actually forgiven you? And maybe you have a, a couple good responses, but generally you're like, yeah, just in general. 
But think about specifics, people, conversations, events, things you said that you wish you could take back, things you did that if you could do it over again, you would never do it that way, things that you failed to do, things that you were neglectful of. And the the point here is not for you to sort of re-experience all the the guilt and shame, um, but, but to be reminded that you're a sinner. <laughs> and, and actually, and I, I actually recommend you do this. Write it on a piece of paper. Reflect on it. And then burn it. Burn that piece of paper to remind you that God has forgiven those things. Because the point here is not just to feel bad about the things you've done, but it's to remember, I've done things that were wrong, and God has forgiven me. I found this to be very helpful in my own life. Sanctification is something that works backwards in our lives. It works backwards. In seasons of my own life in which I have been deeply and painfully wronged, in which I've really struggled to forgive, the Lord has gently, uh, by His Spirit, reminded me of incidents in my life when I acted sinfully. Sometimes for the first time, I'm remembering an event and remembering it anew, thinking to myself, I was wrong there. I acted arrogantly. Or I I was wrong. I was negligent. Or they were right when they were upset with me about that, even though in the time I was absolutely certain that I had done no wrong. Sanctification works backwards. And um, when we're humbled when we're humbled by the ways that we ourselves are sinners. And, and again, I'm, I'm talking here not about abuse, horrific evils. I'm talking about the kind of everyday stuff that we always experience. It doesn't make it less evil or less, but maybe the consequences aren't the same. But it's hard for me to be in a rage or be self-righteously anger, angry at a person and uncompromising in a situation when I recall and I remember all the ways I was a jerk, all the ways that I failed, all the ways that I, I just mess up. I mean, if that's, it, just, it just puts you in a posture of being open. <laughs> and this is where you have to start. This is where when, when you can't forgive, this is where you have to start, to start melting the unforgiveness, is recognize that you're a sinner, that you're not a pure, innocent victim. You may have been truly and deeply wronged, but you yourself are a sinner. The effect of God's forgiveness in our life is transformation. That's the assumption that Jesus makes here. Um, And this transformation makes it easier for us. Not easy or simple, but easier to forgive. And I want to be really clear. Jesus in this parable is not teaching you to be motivated to forgive out of fear of being imprisoned. or fear of having uh, forgiveness withdrawn from your life. No, Jesus wants to motivate you to, to forgive, not out of fear of punishment, but actually fear of the Lord. Um, to be motivated because God has forgiven you so much. Do you, I mean, that ought to create a kind of fear, healthy fear in your life. Psalm 30, or I'm sorry, Psalm 130 says this, if the Lord, if, O Lord, you had marked iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
right? Who can mark iniquities, right? I mean, they're innumerable. Who can stand before you, God? None. Why does God forgive in order that he might be feared? The fear of the Lord is what it means to have a right relationship with God. Um, it is, uh, forgiveness is not an excuse for our spiritual laziness or, or carelessness or ongoing injustice. Fear of the Lord is, it humbles us. It produces a life of reverence, of awe, and ultimately of deep love. Deep love of others and actual desire to forgive. And I think when we understand the true costliness of what we are forgiven, um, it's easier to forgive others. And that's, that's that line in, that we're about to sing later as our closing song from Amazing Grace. Perhaps you've never understood this line, but here's where it comes from. We sing that, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, "'and grace my fears relieved. "'How precious did that grace appear, "'the hour I first believed." Pray with me. God, you have forgiven so much in our hearts, in our lives, and sometimes we are distant from that. We're like the unmerciful servant. We don't really know ourselves. We're out of touch with the true reality of our own sinfulness. And, and Lord, we, want, we need you to remind us of that, not in a way that overwhelms us and sends us spiraling down into depression, or, but, but a kind of sober-mindedness about our own fallibility, our own weakness, and that we could receive that and, and then truly receive your grace as a healing balm for that. So I do pray that your forgiveness of us as sinners would, would grip and thrill our hearts and, and that you could move us towards forgiving one another. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.